Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another Angular Master episode. Today, together with Manfred Steyer, my lovely co-host, we talk about Angular architecture in general. Hi, Manfred. How are you? Hi, Derek. Thanks. I'm fine. Okay, so let's start. Uh, Manfred, why do we need to concentrate on software architecture at all? Well, if you ask me, this is all about reaching quality attributes, your quality requirements. And most of the times, those are so-called non-functional requirements. Things like performance, things like extensibility, things like I want to scale the development over three or four teams. And yeah, to reach them, we need to respect those aspects from the very beginning. Of course, we live in an agile world and refactoring is always a part of the game. But uh, there are for sure some decisions we better make sooner than later. Uh, for instance, let me just give you one example of my past. We had this huge system. It was really huge. It implemented a lot of business processes. And we did this for a government, for a local government here in Austria. And we implemented module after module, domain after domain. And after three years, the customer told us, oh, and by the way, how can I configure a dependent? And we asked him, what, we, how, dependent? We did not know that this should be a multi-dependent solution. And then we looked up the, the papers and uh, we saw in the specifications in the introduction that this is a multi-dependent solution. And of course, no one did read the introduction. I mean, who reads the introduction? We started with chapter one. And yeah, this was quite difficult, even though we all know that refactoring is important, uh, squeezing in multi-tendency afterwards was quite a challenge. And honestly, it did not work perfectly for quite a time because it influenced all the parts of the software. And that's why I'm saying, even though we all know that refactoring is a part of software development, Some decisions need to be done better sooner than later, and some aspects should be respected better sooner than later. Okay, so how to start when creating an architecture? I think the most important thing is to know your architectural goals and also to bring them into a specific order. What is really important for you? Perhaps it's performance. Perhaps it's bundle size. On the other side, uh, especially when consulting companies for micro frontends, I have a lot of customers telling me, well, bundle size is not a topic for us. We have repeating customers. Uh, they have the HTTP cache. Most of them use the network. So bundle size is not that important for us. On the other side, if we had a customer that was doing uh, conversion-oriented stuff where they wanted to sell something on the web 
Of course, performance bundle size is crucial for them because we all know that a very tiny delay makes people move away to competitors or to YouTube for watching some cat videos or something like this. So uh, it always is about knowing your goals and it's also about knowing how important they are. Uh, just one example, if we think on Angular itself, then it's quite clear that for Angular, for the Angular core team, performance and bundle size is one of the major architectural goals. And that's why they are really chasing those topics. That's why the i18n solution looks like what it looks like. You know, the i18n solution is compiler-based. The compiler is already exchanging the, the sentences and the terms uh, because they want to have the best performance possible. Nothing needs to be done at random. So start with your architectural goals. Most of the times they are quality goals. Sometimes they can be derived from domain-specific requirements, like it needs to be a multi-tendency solution. Well said. So how does the, a modern software architecture look like? Yeah, so I think a lot of people have high requirements when it comes to the perfect software architecture. He or she needs to be smart, perhaps even the best programmer in town or the best programmer between here and Texas. And they need to uh, know a lot and they need to communicate a lot. And I'm always saying, yeah, that's fine and nice, but don't set the bar too high. Because at the end of the day, it's not only about the software architect. It's about the whole team. And a good team should not need a hero, a hero that does not even exist to survive. At the end of the day, it's about the whole team with all the juniors and seniors and perhaps a software architect helping them. And if you ask me, how does such a software architect look alike? I would say, yes, of course, they need to have a sound understanding for technical aspects. They need to have a sound understanding for uh, use case-specific aspects, for domain-specific aspects. Plus, they need to know how to communicate. They need to know how to bring everyone to a table and to think about a good solution that works. It's not about dictatorship. Uh, I think this is one of the more anxious uh, ways of thinking of a software architect. It's more about moderating smart people, the smart juniors and seniors in your team, so that you end up with a good architecture. And it's also about asking the right questions so that the seniors and juniors can think about this or that issue that might occur in future. But one more time, please don't think that the software architect is the big hero that knows everything and is capable of everything. No, he is about connecting all the dots And he is communicating uh, your vision between stakeholders and your team. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think one of the most important topics for now, how to 
document architecture? Yeah, that's, that's really an important topic. And I always say you can over and under do everything. And sometimes I have the impression that both is a big issue in projects. I have seen projects where software documentation, especially architectural documentation, was overdone. They did too much. They wanted to create a document that is kind of, let's say, a manual for the senior and junior developers. And of course, this is wrong because they know their job. So don't tell them what to do. Uh, it's more about giving them a guidance. It's more about documenting your decisions, perhaps decisions uh, for questions where there is not the one and only perfect answer, where all the possibilities bring advantages and disadvantages. On the other side, if you don't document a thing, it's also difficult that uh, someone who is new to the team can work with the current architecture or knows what to respect. So what I really like is document a minimum. Perhaps you are just documenting uh, the unobvious things because the obvious things are better known by all the programmers in the teams. But perhaps you have some unobvious things where you had to discuss a lot because, as mentioned, there is not the perfect solution. There are only trade-offs. Perhaps trade-offs is a good term. Perhaps uh, this documentation should be about trade-offs, about how to getting started. And besides this, I'm really a huge fan of a living documentation. That means I really love to have a sample application that shows your architecture in action. Perhaps it's not one application, perhaps it's two or three applications that show why this or that decision has been made. You know, a picture says more than a thousand words. And in our case, as programmers, source code says more than perhaps a thousand words. So, uh, yeah, I would really try to implement such a living documentation. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the next question is, How does this fit to Agile methods like Scrum? Yeah, so if for us software architecture is like doing a big upfront design, then it does not fit to methodologies like Scrum or extreme programming and so on and so forth. But when we think about software architecture like about thinking about some decisions that are hard to change afterwards. If we think about it like something that's an ongoing process that is there all the time, when we think about it like uh, doing some theories, creating some theories that need to be proven by source code, because at the end of the day, Only your implementation can tell you if your theory, your architecture is right or wrong, works out or not, then it fits quite nicely to Scrum. Also, or to HL methods in general. Also, if we think about the architect as a person who guides the team, who helps the team with decisions, who brings some lacking knowledge into the team, 
who thinks about trade-offs on a regular basis, not just in the beginning, on a regular basis, who is doing difficult refactorings uh, to make the architecture more sound, to bring in your learnings from the last iterations, then also it really fits nicely to Scrum. But if it is about having thousand pages of uh, upfront documentation that tells you everything, at least in theory, then no, then this is not the kind of architecture we want to have in an HL team. And if you ask me, it's not the kind of architecture that's really valuable out there in practice. Well said. So how can we find out if um, software architecture fits? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So this brings me back to the first thing I said, namely, we need to know our architectural goals. Do we have goals regarding performance? Do we have goals regarding uh, bundle sizes? Do we have goals regarding security and so on and so forth? And if you know those goals and if you find a way to measure them, this, that means you need to break them down to something that's measurable because it's usable, it has a high usability, it is performant, uh, cannot be measured what is performance. I mean, you have to assign some numbers. Only if you break it down to something that's measurable, you can evaluate your current product or your current architecture against those goals. And um, when doing so, I would recommend you to take, let's say, two or three days and to go through your architecture and to think about, does this really serve our goals? And do we have to live with trade-offs? Very often, one goal is not reachable for 100%. And in this case, you have to live with trade-offs. I think quite a, a plastic example is um, security. You can make your application more secure by adding more things, but on the same side, this might make uh, or might decrease the usability of your system. Or another example from my very practice, I'm doing a lot with micro frontends nowadays, and there is always this trade-off trade-off between having isolated bundles that don't know much about each other and between the wish to share libraries because we don't want to download Angular 10 times just because of having 10 micro frontends. The thing is, if you share libraries, then you can decrease the overall bundle size, but also it will make your bundles less isolated because they need to assume that they can share this specific version of Angular, this specific version of this library with other micro frontends. This is a typical trade-off situation. And sometimes you cannot even resolve such a trade-off situation. But knowing about it, knowing that you need to be sensitive when it comes to this topic uh, is a big gain because uh, it allows you to balance the, the, the existing requirements when doing new decisions. And this is something you should for sure care about when evaluating your architecture. So it's not a Boolean result like true or false. 
it fits and it does not fit. No, it's more about this helps us to reach the goals. This perhaps is rather counterproductive. And here we have a sensitivity point. Here we need some trade-offs. Here we need to find the right balance. Here we need to be careful. Yeah, and normally uh, you can find a lot of important things if you take two or three days. Regardless of the overall size of your architecture. Of course, the bigger your application, the more time you need to dive deep into it. But on the other side, software architecture is not your whole building. It's more of the carrying walls. And each and every building just has uh, some few carrying walls and the rest are implementation details. And if you look especially at those carrying walls, then two or three days in my experience are a good time frame to get a sound understanding of what's good, what's counterproductive and where your trade-offs and sensitivity points are. Yes. So, which role plays UML for software architecture? Yeah, so if we look back to the 90s, we all thought that software development should be like engineering, like typically mechanically engineering. And this was also the area where UML came up. And some people thought, well, in engineering, there is a smart person who creates a smart design on his paper with CAD products or something like this. And then the workers get this plan and just needs to uh, do everything they find on the plan. The thing is, and we figured this out during the 90s, and I think this also led to agility and HL methods, this does not work for software development. It does not work because when it comes to software development, you have a lot of smart people in your team. The developers know their stuff perhaps better than the architect. The architect has the uh, high-level uh, overview, but the developer, senior or junior, know their stuff better, and so they know better how to implement it. And that's why writing a big upfront design or uh, modeling a big upfront design is not that smart as it turns out. On the other side, I've already mentioned it, a picture can tell more than 1,000 words. And that's why I'm saying UML is really, really valuable because it allows you to draw pictures other people should understand. Um, on the other side, one more time, some people overdo or overuse UML. Uh, and if you overuse it, especially if you look into all those features that came to UML with version 2, then you have a big effort for something that uh, does not bring a gain. But if you use it, use it right, if you don't overuse it, if you just use it to point out specific things that are not obvious uh, or that helps you to get started with something, then it can be really, really valuable. So for me, UML is a good thing 
when you apply the 80-20 rule to it, to both to modeling your stuff and to using the elements we have when we look in the official UML. At the end of the day, UML is a common language, and I think a common language can never be something that's bad, but it's bad if we talk too much about the wrong things, and uh, I think this is uh, what happens when people over-design, over-architect everything with UML. Yeah, so 80-20 is uh, what, what is beneficial. And also, it does not have to be an official UML diagram all the time. Perhaps just a drawing on a whiteboard is good enough to, to transport an idea or to challenge an idea. I really like to draw some diagrams together with colleagues in front of a whiteboard because this helps us to bring our knowledge together and to bring it down to earth to solve a specific question or to evaluate a specific idea. Splendid. So what are the typical mistakes and challenges when dealing with software architecture? Well, I think one mistake is over-engineering, uh, big upfront design. It generally tells us to do otherwise, but some people think they need to produce a lot of paper to be on the safe side. Another challenge perhaps is uh, that the architect is seen as the team lead, the technical team lead, the person who is a hero and tells everyone what to do. And as mentioned before, that does not work. The architect should be more of a moderator that connects the dots, the dots between business and technique, who communicates the solutions and who enforces good discussions about pain points. And yeah, in this case, everything is okay, but the architect should not be a dictator that tells everyone what to do. This will not work out. Yeah, and on the same side, when I'm saying over-engineering is bad, yeah, but also under-engineering is bad. Both is bad. I tried out both, and both did not work out that well. I had a project, I think it was my first project, when I uh, came to this uh, industry, and it was totally under-engineered. My colleagues hated me for it. And the next project was totally over-engineered. We had loosely coupling for everything. We had an interface and a factory for everything. And it also turned out to be not usable because this also decreased maintainability. So finding this weak spot, uh, what's enough, is really something that's a challenge. And I think there, there is not a good rule for finding the sweet spot. Of course, if you have some experience, then it will be a bit easier for you to find. So what are the typical architecture styles in the, in the world of Angular front-end? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the overall structure of the application, I'm seeing two styles or three styles a lot. The first style is the style we find in a lot of books. 
It's about subdividing your application into features and into some shared parts. Uh, and this affects most of the time our cut into ng modules and our folder structure. And this is really okay for a small or medium-sized project, several developers, several months. But if you say, well, a lot of developers work for a year or longer on it, then this is nice, but not enough. In this case, I rather want to slice my application into domains, domains that don't need to know much about each other. I know I talked a lot about domain-driven design in the past, especially about strategic design. And I really love it because a subdomain, a business domain, is a nice vertical. A vertical that can be uh, isolated from other business domains, from other verticals. And this is what all is about. Isolate your application into parts that don't need to know much about each other then you can change something here without breaking something there. And if you don't like the word domain, yeah, use the word vertical or section or scope. It's up to you how you call it, but please do it. If you want to go one step further, you define one tiny application per vertical. This is what we call micro frontends or microservices in the backend. And it's just about bringing your modules on the next level because now each module, its vertical, is an application of its own and this enforces isolation one more time. This makes sure that everything can be maintained without influencing other stuff. However, the last architectural style, micro frontends, in my opinion, only pays off if you really have a big product and if you want to scale it across different teams. Then it really pays off. Otherwise, I would go with a mono repo. Anax brings a lot of tooling for this. So look into Anax and with cutting it into verticals, I would call them, as mentioned, subdomains. Yeah, those are the three big architectural decisions or architectural styles I'm facing in practice. Another big architectural decision is about state management. I always say start simple. Perhaps just a behavior subject is good enough for you. A behavior subject hidden by a service, exposed via an observable. And uh, perhaps you need something more. If you need something more, then I would look into NGRX. And squeezing in NGRX afterwards can be easy if you start with a service, with a so-called facade that is exposing everything using a use case-specific interface, exposing everything with methods that are use case-specific, load flights, book a flight, create an invoice, exposing everything also via let's say, observes. And if you have this, the consumer of this facade does not think about if there is a behavior subject underneath it or a big store solution like NGRX. Um, they don't even recognize, and so you can switch out your simple solution by a more complex one if you really feel 
that it's necessary. And this also brings me back to agile architectures. And architecture in an agile sense is always just a theory. And you have to prove this theory with source code. And if it turns out that the theory was not that sound, you need to find ways to refactor your application. As mentioned, to squeeze in NGRX or some other state management library. And by, by respecting this upfront, by introducing facades, this is a bit easier. Yeah, what was the question? Typically architectural styles, yeah. Yeah, so uh, is a software architect a project lead? I think in tiny teams that can be the case, in teams where you need more roles than you have people. But in a perfect world, I would separate those roles somehow. As mentioned, it's not always possible But if it's possible, you should separate it because uh, both roles have uh, different goals and perhaps they even need to find a trade-off uh, to reach those goals. The project lead wants to bring the project to a success. The project lead also wants the project to finish in time on budget. The software architect thinks more about long-term goals, long-term quality goals. Achieving the first goal, shipping the project, is uh, not the first and foremost goal for the architect. For the architect, it's about being capable of maintaining this in long-term, being capable of adjusting this for not one customer, but for 200 customers over the next two Yes, and yeah, so there are very often conflicting goals. So, so I would say, if possible, no, should be different roles. Um, if you just have a small team, then that's not always possible. So is a software architect a senior developer? In my opinion, yes. In my opinion, a software architect should be a senior developer that experienced a lot, that also did a lot of mistakes. That's also important because mistakes make us learn. Um, but a software architect needs to be a bit more than a developer. He or she also needs to be a moderator. He or she needs to have a sound understanding for the business. He or she needs to have an overview of everything, not at specific techniques, they need to have an overview. And so, yeah, a software architect is, of course, a senior developer with some additional skills or some additional tasks. Everything can be learned. I don't believe in the mystery of uh, you have to be that person or this person, you have to have this character or that character. No, I don't believe into this. All those skills can be learned and trained on the job. But someone has to do it. Someone has to take on this role. Well said. So it was our la last technical question. So let's switch to the soft part. Today, this is where it gets funny. Exactly. Today we are talking about work-life balance. Is work-life balance important or is it just a buzzword? 
Yeah, uh, honestly, I hate to sm- I, I, I had to smile when I uh, figured that we will talk about work-life balance today because I'm not a good role model, at least not from a third party's perspective. It's, it's a bit more complicated. The thing is, I'm always saying I'm a bit like a strewning dog. I have the luxury of doing things, of working with technologies I'm really keen on, I really like to do. And especially as a consultant and as a trainer, I can choose my topics. And so I don't need a strict border between work and free time because everything for me is like a hobby. Everything for me is like something I really like to do. If this would not be the case, then my lifestyle would be a disaster because from a third-party perspective, it seems like I'm really working a lot. But if you find out that for me, this is not just work. For me, this is also fun. It is a game, trying it out. And if this doesn't work, then perhaps that works. And if I don't find a solution, I look up the source code of Angular to find out why it behaves this or that way. So if you see it like a game, like how little childs are learning for them also everything is a game and they play and they can play the whole day and if they should fall asleep they are still playing uh, then uh, it's not that a big disaster because in my very case uh, there is not a strict board but one more time be careful because if this is not the case then you can run into a burnout or you could end up living a unhappy life. So in summary, how satisfied are you with your current work-life balance? Well, I'm really satisfied because I'm only doing stuff I really love and I really find interesting. Mainly, of course, sometimes you have to write some invoices. Sometimes you have to do some organizational stuff. But, you know, you can automate this. And so most of the time, I'm really satisfied with uh, my life and how all of this works. Excellent. How to take care of it to keep the right balance? Well, I think since my childhood, I have an inner compass for this because since my childhood, I'm very reluctant of doing things I don't like to do. My parents hated me for this. My parents thought, boy, this boy will land on the street. He will never get a proper job because for them, working was something that needs to be hard, where you need to have some sweat on your face, on your skin. But yeah, I was ever reluctant of doing things I didn't like. And uh, they really are relieved that it worked out that well for me. Uh, funnily, my mother told me sometimes after I got a job, well, Manfred, we always thought you will land on the street. We always thought you will never get a job because uh, you were not interested in working hard when you was a boy. And we are really glad that it worked that well out for you. Yeah. So I think it's, it's funny that my mother was that honest to me. Okay. In the compass. Yeah, that's that's really funny. The question, 
How often do you check work emails on your phone? So I'm asking this because I want us to force ourselves to reflect on our work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm checking emails quite often. I'm reading emails quite often. But I try to answer them and block on the end of the day. Because if I need to switch tasks, this somehow hurts my brain. And somehow I figured out the older I get, the more difficult it is to switch between tasks. I really love it to um, concentrate on one topic for the whole day, to implement something or to solve an issue. And then at the end of the day, I uh, answer my email. But somehow I'm quite a curious person. And that's why I always have to look at the screen of my phone if something interesting appeared. And yeah, perhaps sometimes it's too much. Sometimes it's good because I need a break even though. So, okay. Uh, I want to ask you about your physical health. How is your physical health? Yeah, so thanks for asking. It's a crap. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's not that bad. But I told you before about my inner compass that tells me that I'm reluctant of doing things I don't like to do. And one of those things is doing sports. And yeah, that's why I never really did a lot of sports. I don't like it. And uh, I think that's why currently I have some issues with my back. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I need to, to find a solution for this. I'm still thinking about how to solve those issues with my back without doing too much sports. Uh, I have an appointment with my physician later this week, and I hope she will give me a good solution. I mean, she has started this, so hopefully she has a sound solution for this. Uh, well, by the way, did I mention that I'm not a good role model when it comes to this? Yeah, so but... Don't, don't do what I'm doing. But you've asked me and I gave you an honest answer. But I'm really sure children, if you hear this, don't do it like Manfred. He is not a good role model when it comes to this. Yeah, but this, is, this, this uh, conversation is about about us, about our life now. And uh, yeah, so as I said before, I want to force us to reflect on our work-life balance. So that's why I'm asking. Mm -hmm. uh, next question. What do you think of when you are falling asleep at night? Boy, good question. So when I was younger, I had really the issue that I was not capable of falling asleep. I was tired, but I was not capable of falling asleep. But meanwhile, I found a life hack. Before going to bed, I'm writing down everything I want to do tomorrow. And then I see, boy, that's too much. And then I'm switching it back and forth. And then uh, there are three or four points I really want to do tomorrow. And this is really freeing my brain because then I can fall asleep because then I know I don't need to concentrate on this anymore. Tomorrow in the morning, I will look up my task list and yeah, I will do it, hopefully. This is excellent, excellent advice. So, 
The last questions, maybe you have some another advice. What can we do to ensure a better work-life balance? Well, while I'm not a role model for this, for sure, I think this inner compass thing is quite a good indicator. Because if you listen to yourself, what do you like? What don't you like? And if there are a good balance between things you have to do and things you want to do, things you enjoy to do, then everything should be okay. If you feel something is hurting because this balance is not right for you, there is not enough overlapping uh, or there is too much of the things you have to do and don't want to do, then perhaps you should question uh, your current situation. And I know that's easier said than done because not everyone can choose what he or she wants to do. But on the other side, I have also learned something, namely we need to reinvent ourselves from time to time. And in my case, I need to reinvent myself every five or seven years. I have to change something in my life uh, to make sure that I have enough things I really like to do. I have enough things that are not boring. And yeah, I know it's easier said than done because uh, not everyone has always the chance. But thinking on this, but brainstorming different opportunities can help you to break out of this, of this wheel. It can help us to break out. And perhaps one last sentence. I think we programmers are really lucky because in our industry today, it is perhaps easier than in other industries to reinvent ourselves, to start with a new topic or with a new, with a new focus. Well said, Manfred. Thank you so much from, for today's conversation. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you, to spend time with you. Thank you so much. I hope people like it because it was a lot of valuable information. Thank you so much. I thank you. And uh, did I mention that I'm not a role model? <laughs> I think yes. I <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you so much.